Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. All right, with that, let's head into biblical eldership. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 31 today. Um, and right up front, I, I, we have a difficult job. We're going to try to paint a picture of what a biblical pastor is over the next few weeks. And to do that, today, I've got to do two things. First of all, I'm going to have to shoot some sacred cows and undo some ways of thinking that probably a lot of us have grown up with. And second, I hope to reshape from Scripture a healthy view of this role. And my hope is that moving forward, those who attend here will have a clear picture of what an elder is, what a pastor is, and benefit from this ministry of this church. And I think add to that the fact that it has been the elder role gone wrong that has caused some of the greatest church hurt in people's lives. And we have a tough job to do these next few weeks, talk about this idea, biblical eldership. Let's start with the blueprint. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 31. This is not like um, necessarily the, blue, the blueprint, like laying it out with theological or, you know, sort of role definition assertions. What we see here is an elder with other elders in action. We get to see what it looks like in action here in Acts chapter 20. This is Paul's last visit to Ephesus. He gathers the elders of the church, and we pick up the story there. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus... And called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord, excuse me, with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for um, giving to us this picture, this snapshot of a healthy local church, of a healthy church family. And how, Lord, you, you give gifts to men. You raise up uh, men and women in the body, Lord, to, to be 
mobilized in their gifts and their skill sets, and together, as we function as the body, there's health. And help us to understand this role today of a biblical elder and how that uh, comes to bear on our growth in the gospel and our growth uh, together as a church family and our mission in the city. And we just ask for your grace in that because the speaker and the hearer alike are weak and we need your grace and your help today. In Jesus' name, amen. We see right away in this text that elder and overseer, and in a minute we're going to see the term pastor, all synonymous. Verse 17, he used the term elder in the beginning of the text. And in verse 28, he interchangeably uses the word overseer and also the word care in verse 28, again where he says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God is the Greek word poimen, which means to pastor or shepherd. And that's why the NIV says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The reference to the word flock in this text is a clear indication of this idea of poimen or shepherd that he refers to at the end of the verse. So the three words used interchangeably here are elder. It's the Greek word uh, presbyteros, meaning a mature man having seasoned judgment. Overseer is the word episkopos, uh, which means oversight that goes on to provide care and attention by literally keeping his eye on a flock. And pastor is poimen, meaning the feeder, protector, and ruler of the flock, of a flock of men. Other words that are used as synonyms for elder in other parallel passages are the terms bishop or presbyter. All these terms are consistently used interchangeably and synonymously throughout the New Testament. But today, I think in modern Western church, we compartmentalize these terms. We say, oh, he's the pastor and he's a bishop. And that's actually not a biblical way to use those terms. They're all the same. A pastor is an elder, an elder is a pastor. A pastor is a bishop, an overseer is a bishop. Just nobody please go around calling me a bishop. <laughs> Maybe Josh, but not me. <laughs> one, of the main, one of the main things this tells us is that pastoral leadership in a church is plural, is a plural, not a solo venture. If elder and pastor are synonymous terms and we stop compartmentalizing them, then that means churches, as we see in Scripture, are led by councils of elders or councils of pastors, not just a senior pastor. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Finally, it's worthy to note that these terms, all these terms, are masculine. Just like the terms father and husband are masculine, the term elder is actually a masculine term. And there are many wonderful roles that women can play and ought to play in the body of Christ, but it seems that men are specifically called to this particular role in the body, just like it would be a husband in a family or a father in a family. So the first thing we see is that these terms are synonymous. The second things we, thing we see is that elders are important. Elders are how God leads his church. Now, you can gather with um, people who, who are part of the church, the greater you know, universal church in different contexts and have fellowship with believers in all places and different contexts and in different ways. But to be a church... Uh, I think there are some distinct things that have to come to bear for, for a gathering of Christians to be a church. 
I mean, today I think there's a notion that two people sitting at a bar talking about the Bible is instantly a church. And I think as we look at the Bible, we see that does not a church make. They may be part of the church, but this is not a local church. In his definition of the local church, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says this, a local church is a group of professing believers in the Messiah who have been baptized and have organized themselves under the leadership of elders and deacons for the purpose of carrying out the Great Commission, for conducting the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, for the building up of the body through the worship of God, the fellowship of the believers, the teaching of the word, and the exercise of spiritual gifts. And I think he's drawing a lot of that definition from Acts chapter 2, where he actually mentions some of those things. In a recent article by Together for the Gospel called Nothing on Your Phone, Including TGC, Together for the Gospel, can replace the local church. And I think, I think in the whole COVID phase, that kind of happened with a lot of people, where a lot of people haven't returned to church because, well, I'm just going to kind of, I have my favorite teacher that I can listen to on Sundays on, uh, on TV or on the, you know, on the radio or a podcast, and, and, and that's, my, that's my church. And Brent McCracken in his article makes a case that uh, nothing can replace actually gathering with God's people in a local church context. He says, Christians are not meant to be consumers, we're meant to be servants. That tells you a lot right there. It's hard to be a servant if you're just listening to your favorite podcast on Sunday morning and not around God's people investing yourself in the body. And Christianity is not merely content. It's an embodied, lived community, active Committed participation in the local church reminds us of this. So we're going to circle back to our text in Acts 20 in a few minutes. But first, I want to kind of bullet point a few things. Let's talk about what a pastor is not. Number one, a pastor is not a priest. A pastor's role is not to become someone's priest. A priest is someone who, you might say, accesses God on behalf of someone else. A pastor's job is to teach the priesthood of all believers, to raise up mature and confident children of God. As a pastor, I want to help you know God, relate to God, and hear from God. In some ways, I want to get out of the way. You've got the same size Holy Spirit I do, so my job is to get out of the way and teach you and help you to relate to God the Father, to relate to the chief shepherd, and not to sort of become your intermediary you know, between you and the Father. And that's why as we talk about eldership here at Redeeming Hope, um, we, we talk about this idea of hierarchical leadership versus linear leadership. And I wish I had my diagrams today, but I'll just explain it to you. The idea of hierarchical leadership is that you have sort of this priesthood person at the top of a, a pyramid, and then you've got sort of layers and levels of positions in the church, whether it's, you know, associate pastors, department heads, group leaders, Youth pastor. And, and the idea is sort of, you know, at the, at the bottom of that, you've got sort of the, the church members. And a lot of times what ends up happening in the hierarchical model is if you want to talk to God, you have to go up the pyramid. And we, cre- we sort of recreate this functional priesthood. And this is where a lot of spiritual abuse happens is when people f- feel like my access to God is through someone else. And it's sort of the reinstallation of a priesthood, which the New Testament does not teach. The New Testament teaches the priesthood of all believers. So instead, we, we sort of aspire to this idea of a linear model where the Christian life is a journey that begins here and moves down this linear plane. Now, I've been walking with God for 30, 40 years. Josh has been walking with God for a long time. And so the, the idea is that hopefully elders are spiritually mature people who are farther down this path, 
than those who are before us. My job is to help you come along that path. And the whole time, all of our eyes are fixed on the chief shepherd, no matter where you are on the path. So our job is to help bring you along that path to relate to the chief shepherd like hopefully we are doing and move along this path toward our divine design, our calling, and our relationship with God. So that's more of a linear approach to leadership. And, and as I look at scripture and as I look at eldership, that's more of the model that I see taught in scripture. So a pastor is not a priest. He's a helper. Number two, a pastor or an elder is not, I don't know what else to call it, but a Truman Show cyborg. And you're like, that's what you came up with? Sorry, that's, yeah, that's what I came up with. You, you've seen the, have you ever seen the, the, the movie, The Truman Show? You know, it's sort of this poor Jim Carrey, this poor guy um, who doesn't realize he's in this fake show and, and he's around all these actors and he's grown up in this fake world. And, and, uh, but everybody on the show, everybody's just so nice and fake, you know, and smiling all the time. And, and, and it's sometimes I think people see pastors like that. People sometimes want this sort of polished pastor doll that pastors who excel at being nice have limitless energy, they're there all the time, every time, never make any mistakes, and don't ever get offended. Not realistic. And I say that to say God calls ordinary men to be elders, ordinary men to be pastors who have ordinary personalities, weaknesses, and limitations, which is why we need plurality of elders, but God works through them. Paul said it's like a treasure in an earthen vessel. Number three, a pastor is not a superhero. Only Jesus was the perfect and complete leader. If you look at Ephesians 4.11, it says this, God, that God has given the church apostles, pastors, prophets, teachers, and evangelists. Some have called this the five-fold ministry. Now, the church needs these ministries functioning to be healthy and to thrive. But here's the thing. Only Jesus is all five of those perfectly all the time. Amen. The message of the church is that Jesus is the only superhero. Jesus is a hero of every story of the Bible, and Jesus is a hero of the church. Only Jesus was the perfect and complete leader. In the book of Revelation, John sees a vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to kind of give you this, this quick picture because I think it's so awesome. In Revelation 1, John has this, this vision of, he sees Jesus, and he describes him, and his description is detailed and multifaceted. He says things like, his eyes were a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, his voice was like the roar of many waters. And then he says, in his right hand, he held seven stars, referring to the seven churches of Revelation. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So he gives this sort of complete picture of Jesus. Then... Through John, Jesus addresses all seven churches one by one in the first few chapters of Revelation. But here's what's interesting, is that he only uses part of the description as he addresses the churches. He only uses part of the description of himself from chapter one. For example, when addressing the church of Pergamum, he says, to the angel of the church of Pergamum write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Then he goes on. When addressing the church of Thyatira, he says, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze, and then he goes on. My point is this. Only when you put the letters to all seven churches of the book of Revelation together do you reconstruct the whole picture of Jesus in chapter 1. I just find that fascinating. 
It's through the multifaceted uh, expression of the body of Christ that the church can fully see Jesus and that the world can fully see Jesus. And so a pastor is not a superhero. Jesus is a superhero. Jesus is the only superhero. And by the way, Jesus is also the only celebrity in the body of Christ. Only Jesus has it all. Okay, a pastor, not a superhero. Not a president. There's this notion today that the pastor is sort of like the president of the church, and we hear silly things like referring to the pastor's wife as the first lady. <laughs> or treat the pastor like Moses coming down from the mountain, you know, from, from Mount Sinai. And as an aside, the best thing that Heidi Joe or Rachel can do to serve this church is actually to serve our families. One of the things we've had as a, as, a, as a virtue and a value in our family since we began being involved in ministry in general, let alone church planting, is family first, and whatever is left over is for ministry. Now, there's different seasons where, you know, we're in a different season now than we were when we started the church in New York 12 years ago. Our kids were a lot smaller and required more attention. Um, so Heidi has more margin now to give to ministry and to the church than she did back then, but there's other seasons when that's not possible. But I think, I think thinking of um, the, the pastor as a president and the first lady can sort of create this assumption in this culture where you know, the pastor's wife is supposed to take this role that she may not be called to take, or you know, we don't need to put pressure on her to take that role. And so we don't put that pressure on Rachel. We don't put that pressure on Heidi. They can serve as they're able to serve with the margin that they have serving their family as their primary ministry. So first of all, I hope to prove to you that the senior pastor model, this idea that we have kind of is stuck in our heads when we think about modern Western church, where one single pastor elder is given more authority than anyone else in the church, not biblical, not healthy, not safe. Not that God hasn't used that or can't use that, but I, I don't see that when I look in Scripture. There's really no case for that. There's no biblical precedence for sort of the one genius in a thousand dummies model that permeates the Western world. When Paul started churches in Gentile cities, over and over again, he repeated the same model. He established councils of elders. There was a plurality of leaders that worked together. Mark Dever of the Nine Marks Ministry said this, the first thing to note in scripture about the pastors or elders of a local church is that they are plural. Now, you can make the case that there, there was what you would call a first among equals in a lot of these situations. It seems that James was sort of the first among equals in the Jerusalem church. At times you see Peter sort of functioning in the first among equals role, and Paul at times functioning in the first among equals role. But there was never absolute authority given to one man. The idea of first among equals is what we practice here at Redeeming Hope. Josh and I are called co-leads, but that doesn't mean that we have more authority than the other elders on our current board or that as we add elders that we'll have more authority than, than they'll have. A first among equals has more influence but not more authority. As lead pastors, because our ministry is more public and because we're visionaries, we certainly have the most influence but we don't have the most authority. <clears throat> In his book, Biblical Eldership, Alexander Strzok uh, shares this anecdote of a visit he made to a local church that was very telling. 
He says, while attending a sacred music concert, I received an insightful lesson in ecclesiology. That just means how a church gathers. As I walked into the main foyer of this big church where their concert was being held, I immediately noticed the photographs and names of the senior pastor and his staff arranged in a pyramid within a glass encasement on the wall. The senior pastor's photograph was at the top, his three associate pastor's photographs were below him, and the rest of the church staff's photographs completed the base of the pyramid. As I walked further into the building and down a side hall, I saw another glass encasement that contained the photographs and names of the church elders. I immediately thought, what a superb illustration of how the church elders have been pushed aside to a scarcely visible position in the church. This is quite different, he writes, from the New Testament model of eldership. Here at Redeeming Hope, we actually take the idea of first among equals a little farther. Josh and I are practicing this idea of first among equals in different areas of the church ministry. For example, I'm the first among equals when it comes to the Sunday gathering and overseeing the teaching ministry. And he's the first among equals when it comes to groups and discipleship. And so we're practicing mutual submission in this way. Matter of fact, I just got a call from him this week. And he said, Derek, this whole military outreach thing. And I was in Tulsa with Audrey. She was competing for Team Tennessee out there. And he calls me in the middle of the tournament. I had a break between some of the competitions. And, and he says, hey, I want to let you know about this thing. And I said, well, Josh, you have my heart on that. I mean, I think you know how I would think about that. He goes, yeah, but this is your area. And I didn't want to step on your toes. I thought, oh, that's, he, we're, we're, we're honoring this plurality that God has put together. And he's, we're functioning with that mutual submission. And he's recognizing the area where I'm leading, and there's times where I recognize the area where he leads in groups. I'm like, Josh, what do you want me to do with, you know, with groups? How do you want me to run that? How do, you, how do you want us to structure that? Or what's, you know, as far as the timeline goes, and I, I get his feedback from that, and we practice this idea of mutual submission. Plurality is something that we practiced um, at Grace Life Church in New York, the church we planted 12 years ago. And over time, we grew an eldership team of seven elders. Uh, it was a highly functional team where we identified one another's gifts and skill sets, mobilized one another in those areas of ministry, and practiced mutual submission. So when we came here to Clarksville to be involved in church planting, uh, really, we came with our hands kind of open. I didn't come down to this city from the Northeast like, here's the grand vision. We wanted to get to the city, get a feel for the landscape of what God was doing, and then make our decision as to how we'd invest in local church ministry. That's when we met Josh and Rachel. We began to meet uh, for a couple months, and over time, Josh said, hey, would you consider working with us? And I talked to the people that, you know, counsel me, and he talked to the people that counsel him, and we decided to go in on this together in this sort of co-lead model, which some people are like, man, you have to identify one leader. And I'm, my response is, well, this is exactly what we practiced in Western New York, so it's not a strange idea to me to practice this idea of the plurality of elders. And if you make elder and pastor synonymous, what's the difference if we serve together as elders or we serve together as co-lead pastors? I mean, it's, it's just semantics when it comes to the vocabulary. So it's not, it wasn't a strange idea to me because we'd been doing this in New York for 12 years. So to come here and begin with plurality, to me, was a good and healthy thing, and it's been a good and healthy thing. Okay, finally. Um, a pastor is not a CEO, and Josh already referred to this idea of uh, we're, not a, you know, we're not a business, we're a church family. There are certainly some helpful business principles we can always apply to our church organizational culture, but corporate America is not our kingdom. A pastor is not a CEO sitting at the top 
of an organizational hierarchy. This type of thinking inevitably leads to results over a relationship. I've seen it, I've been in those cultures. People, there's a trail of blood in a lot of these cultures. It reduces church members to workers and sets the CEO up as sort of the master genius to produce results. And the bottom line is this, God is sovereign over the church and he's sovereign over church growth and he makes you what he ultimately wants you to be as you're faithful to preach the gospel. Because sometimes you can be doing everything right and have 25 people in your church. And sometimes the church can be be doing everything wrong and have thousands of people in the church. Numbers do not equal revival or success and the pastor should not merely be measured by these metrics. But a pastor or an elder should be measured by his faithfulness to the word of God and his love for the saints. Further, I think this sort of CEO mentality leads to what I call the T-Rex church. Ever see a T-Rex? I got those big thunderous legs, right? And then little tiny arms. And that's what ends up happening to the body. You get, when you have that sort of one guy, his strengths are magnified and you got those big thunderous legs. And there's other parts of the church that are extremely weak and underdeveloped because there's not a recognition of the need for plurality and the expression of body ministry. So when you have this superhero CEO president mentality, then the strengths of that leader will certainly be reflected in the church, but so will his weaknesses, and the church begins to be misshapen. Again, Mark Dever, Nine Marks. As a senior pastor, probably the most single helpful thing to my pastoral ministry, he writes, has been the recognition of other elders. They round out my gifts, make up for some of my deficiencies, supplement my judgment, and create support for the congregation for decisions. We believe the New Testament principles of plural eldership leading a church community are biblical and healthy. Eldership, and this is my experience, helps us to avoid burnout, spiritual abuse, doctrinal error, unchecked weakness in a leader, inflated egos, or bottleneck discipleship, where one leader is doing all the ministry. So, a pastor, an elder, not a priest, not a Truman Show cyborg, not a superhero, not a president, not a CEO. So what is a pastor? Number one, a pastor is a sheep. Pastors are simultaneously sheep and shepherds. Listen to Hebrews 13.20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So this gives a picture of Jesus being the chief shepherd of the church and everybody else are sheep, including the elders and the pastors. Now that's important to point out before I talk about some of the distinct ways that a pastor is called to serve. It's important to point out that a pastor, an elder, an overseer, a bishop, a presbyter is still a sheep. Because on one hand, There's a balance here, because on one hand, if we think we're just sheep, we'll be weak leaders. But on the other hand, if we think we're just shepherds, we'll stop growing and become arrogant. I reached out to a man that I consider to be an abusive bully pastor who had really harmed several friends of mine, and I reached out to him to try to appeal to him. And I remember one thing, he got mad at me. One of the things he said to me was, shepherds don't listen to the sheep. What are you listening to the sheep for? And I began to see how he was thought of himself. He didn't have plurality of leaders. He was the man. He was the anointed one. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. By the way, everybody's anointed. Okay, just so you know. 
but that's his mentality. And he began to just beat people up in the name of Jesus. Amy Carmichael once said, those who think too much of themselves don't think enough. Jesus is chief shepherd. I'm still a sheep. Josh is still a sheep. The work, Alexander Strzok writes, the work of feeding and tending sheep is hard, arduous work and love for sheep alone will not do it. You must have a consuming love for the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, Josh and I stand before you saying, we're growing too. We're still disciples. We're still on that linear path ourselves growing. There's people we listen to in some ways, elders, elder, elders, pastors, pastor, pastors. And, and at the same time, I'm encouraged by you. I'm encouraged, you know, when I go to my group on Wednesday nights, I'm like, hey, this is my group too. And so I open up my heart and I receive ministry from the body as well. Why? Because I'm still a sheep. Okay. <laughs> a pastor is also a shepherd. Can we go back um, to the image that we have for this series? Sorry to throw that curveball at you. See that picture there that we chose? It's a picture of sheep because that is an accurate picture of an elder because an elder is a shepherd. So let me talk about the work of a shepherd. Shepherds care for, for the flock, providing for them and defending them. Alexander Strzok again writes, if we want to understand Christian elders and their work, we must understand the biblical imagery of shepherding. As keepers of the sheep, New Testament elders are to protect, feed, lead, and care for the flock's many practical needs. Another book in the Nine Mark series by Jeremy Rennie, he writes this, the elders' mission is to lead, teach, protect, and love their church members the way shepherds care for sheep in a flock so that the church members will grow up into spiritual maturity. And part of what that means is tracking down the strays. Sometimes sheep, sheep wander. Jesus talked about how you know, the, the loving shepherd leaves the 99 to find the lost one. This is both one of the most unpleasant but loving parts of pastoral ministry is realizing, okay, we got a straying sheep here. How do we love this straying sheep? Because oftentimes if you reach out to a straying sheep, they bite you. I remember when I was in New York, there was a young man who had a history of addiction. He'd gotten his life together. He came to Christ in our church and you know, began to sort of recover, uh, but he relapsed. And uh, part of that was condemnation came on him and he just completely cut himself off from the body and he was going down this dark path. And I'd call him, he wouldn't answer. I'd text him, he wouldn't answer. And I thought... I'm just going to blow by all the stop signs and stoplights, and I'm just going to show up at his house. So literally, I just show up unannounced at his house. Um, his, uh, he lived with his dad. His dad answered the door. I said, is Josh here? He says, yeah, he's upstairs. I said, tell him I'll be at the kitchen table. And I walked in, and I sat down. And I waited for him to come downstairs. And he came down. When he walked into the room, you could just see the shock. I said, have a seat. I said, I'm here to tell you that I love you. I love you. And there's no condemnation in Christ no matter what you're going through. Don't lean out. Lean in. We're here for you. And that conversation saved his life. And he ended up becoming part of the church. We just went back to New York. And, and he's a good friend of Reese's. And, and um, just such a loving guy. He's grown in the Lord. He's mature. He's, he's walking in victory in those areas now. But I had, to, I had to blow by the stop signs. I had to be a shepherd. And I had to go, I had to go find him. Because he was wandering. And I think that's part of the role of a shepherd is sometimes we've got to reach the straying sheep. Anthony Thistleton wrote this. The opposite of love is not correction, but indifference. And I think it's true. It's easier not to correct, isn't it? It's easier not to confront, but it's also not loving. 
Think about the idea of interventions, you know? I mentioned I've seen that show before, some of you have too, the intervention show. And the culminating moment is when the family has this intervention with their loved one and their, their friend and they, they're just honest with them. And they do it because they love them. They say, I hate what this is doing to you and I can't enable it anymore. That's what love does. That's what a shepherd does. That's what an elder does. They're willing to speak the truth in love for the good and betterment of that person. Leading with love, Alexander Strzok. If Paul did not love the Corinthians, he would walk away from them and let them flounder in their own cesspool of sin. Instead, he's proactive. He confronts, warns, writes, visits, and even humbles himself before them. Okay. So, pastor's a sheep, shepherd. Pastor's also an authority. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, <coughs> speaking of elders, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, please, and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. An authority, the scriptures teach here, but only the true intent of that word, a ministry to others for their good. And this is in contrast with what we all hate and what our culture hates, authoritarianism. I'm in charge. Submit to me. Authoritarianism is evil, antisocial, anti-human, says Alexander Strzok, and ultimately anti-God, for self-deifying pride is at its heart, and I have nothing to say in its favor. Jesus said, lording authority is not our kingdom, but kingdom leadership is marked by two things, servanthood, which makes the pastor, elder, the chief servant, and number two, love, that his heart is motivated by love, not power. Strzok says, braggarts build themselves up. Jealous people tear others down, but only, love, only loving people build others up. One important thing to consider here, again, is to separate influence from authority. Uh, a pastor friend of mine who's young and in a new church told me not long ago that one of the older members of his church, who had been there before he was, came up to him after one of his messages and said, you are not my pastor. It's like, well, what did he mean by that? What does he think a pastor is? I think what he probably meant was, you're not the one who has primary influence in my life. Doesn't mean that the guy that he was talking to was not a pastor or his pastor, though. Here's how we should think about this. Someone else may have greater influence on you in the church than an elder or lead pastor co-lead pastor, however you want to, whatever term you want to use, or even an older brother, sister in Christ, a mentor person, and we encourage that, but that does not make that person a pastor. They may be shepherding your heart, and you should treasure that relationship. That's also a sign of health in the body of Christ if your primary spiritual influence doesn't come from the lead pastor or elder. That's actually not a bad thing. But a pastor is in a position of authority and is responsible to care for the flock provide doctrinal oversight, and lead the church whether or not they have a personal relationship with everyone in the church. A pastor should actually seek to create uh, what I like to call a discipling community of mature people that are functional, functionally shepherding and pastoring one another, but that has a dark side. In that culture, if the people revolt and blur the lines between understanding influence and authority, things can get weird and the church starts fracturing. And I should mention, as I already did, society hates the idea of authority. 
So to walk out the blessing of what the Bible is offering here, it requires humility and mutual submission within the body of Christ. And sometimes I think that scares us. And a healthy way to think of it is this idea of interdependence or dependent independence. I've shared the, the picture before of a kite. Right? The kite wants to fly. The kite wants to soar through the wind. Except this stupid string is holding me to the ground. Now, if, the, if, if we could just cut this string, then I could fly, says the kite. What happens if you cut the string? Kite eventually drops to the ground. Won't take long. So actually, the thing that is helping the kite to fly is the connection it has to the ground. It's that string that's actually keeping the kite in the air that's connected to the ground. And that's the way it is with the body of Christ. And that's the way it is with the relationship between brother and sister in Christ, uh, elders functioning in the body with the members of the church. There's this interdependence that helps us fly. So a pastor is an authority with two caveats. To the pastor, I say, remember Jesus' culture of leadership. That helps us avoid spiritual abuse. To the member, I say, submit, but remember what submission means. It doesn't mean blind submission. Submission means giving someone a chance to convince you according to Scripture, like in Acts 15. The leaders deliberated and shared their conclusions with the congregation to give them a chance to wrestle with it. And I think that's what we see the spirit of an elder's authority is. It's, it's they're, they're submitted to the authority of Scripture, and to the degree that they are, and interact with the body in that way, there's health and life and fruit. So, a pastor is a sheep, a shepherd, an authority. Number four, an example. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is terrifying, right, Josh? In 1 Timothy, we have a list of qualifications for elders. Famous text that we use to... Uh, to help us decide who might be called to be an elder in the body of Christ. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. He says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping all dignity with his children submissive. Uh, for if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into the disgrace, into the snare of the devil. The whole point is this. A pastor should be an example. If someone asks the question, what does a godly family look like? They should have an answer when they look at an elder's home. What does a godly marriage look like? Not a perfect marriage, but a godly marriage. We should have an answer when we look at an elder's marriage. It's an error to say, well, that guy gives a lot to the church and he's been a deacon for five years, so I guess it's time for him to be an elder. We ought not think that way. Or, oh, that guy has a lot of spiritual gifts. Have you heard him teach? He's really charismatic. He's got a successful business in town, so he ought to be an elder. We ought not think this way we ought to use 1 Timothy 3 as the standard for eldership. An elder should model these godly traits. Number five, an elder is a teacher. Now we go back to our text. What seems to be Paul's primary concern in Acts 20 that we read at the beginning? He has a chance to say one more thing to these elders. 
What seems to be the theme of his conversation of this committee meeting with his elders? Let's go back into the text. Acts 20, 20 and 21. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 24. But I do not account of my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20, 26. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his blood. Know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves men will arise and speak twisted things, drawing away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So here he is, Paul, one final elder meeting, and he leaves them with one thought. What does it seem to be? To me it seems to be, I'm concerned about the purity of the gospel among you. Why? As we've said many times, because the gospel is the heart of the Christian faith. If we lose it, we die. We cease to be a Christian church. We're talking about the body here. You can have an eye, a hand, all your organs and limbs, but if you lose your heart, you die, and the heart of the church is the gospel. If we lose the gospel, we die, and an elder knows this. So they preach and defend the gospel. Many of Paul's writings and epistles are him doing exactly that. Now, here in modern Western America, Western world, you have churches that are doing many great works. The body looks active, but there are many churches that have ceased to be Christian churches because they've lost the gospel. You can be involved in food pantry ministry and helping the homeless. But like it says in 1 Corinthians 13, I give all I possess to the poor, but if I don't have love, speaking of that love for Christ, that love for God, the love for the, 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 the gospel and what it produces in us, we gain nothing. He said to the Pharisees, you travel land and sea to make one convert. When he becomes one, he becomes twice as much a son of hell as you are. So they were doing good works. They were doing missions work, but they lost the gospel. So they ceased to be servants of God. I was actually uh, in a conference and there, there were some uh, progressive churches that were in this particular conference where I was leading worship. And uh, we ended up uh, in one of these churches. And I didn't realize until we were there uh, how unchristian they were. And they bragged that they'd gone six weeks without mentioning Jesus. It's a church, but it stopped being a Christian church a long time ago. Paul said in Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one we've preached to you, let him be accursed. In other words, they could say, hey, an angel visited our church, right? We know it was an angel, right? We, we kind of put our hands, our hands went right through him, and, and it was a spirit, no doubt. It was this glorious being, and it was amazing. Paul says, ask him what he believes about justification by faith, and if he doesn't believe that we're accepted by God on the basis of grace and the work of Christ, then take that angel by the wings and kick him out of the church. So Paul's saying and so a pastor is a teacher, they're a protector of, a preacher and a protector of the gospel. Okay, finally, here we are on Father's Day. An elder is a father. An elder has a father's heart. The spirit behind an elder role is that of a father's heart, and it's right in some way to think about elders as fathers in the church. That's not the only way to think about them, but that's one way. The church is a family, and not only does it 
create a deep compassion for pastors to have a father's heart. It makes sense of the role and the goal of a pastor, doesn't it? To raise up spiritual children, to be self-governing, self-feeding disciples, to grow into spiritual maturity. Elders are called to make disciples, and that means an elder ought to aim for the spiritual maturity in the church, not be threatened by it. Elders ought to celebrate and rejoice in strong Christians, mature Christians, men and women rising up in the church into their gift ministries. So elders should aim at growth. I mean, let's face it, what's cute at three is not cute at 18 anymore, is it? We had a kid in, in one of the, when I remember growing up, we had a kid in our church, the church I grew up in, uh, who once came walking down the aisle as like a three-year-old completely naked. Now, I'm up there leading worship, and here comes this naked boy just walking down the center of the aisle. Just, it didn't go well in the bathroom, let's just say. It was a disaster in the bathroom. Can you imagine a 25-year-old dude doing that? Totally different experience. So we aim for growth, we aim for maturity, we aim for development. A church is a family, an elder is a father. And we want to see our children grow in the faith. Okay, finally, let's land this thing on Jesus. The end of our text today in Acts 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, and he says, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul points to Jesus, reminding elders that we and those we serve were purchased by blood. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good elder, he says. I'm the good pastor. I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm not a hireling. I'm not doing this for money. I'm doing this because I love my sheep. He says, I lay down my life for my sheep. And he said, my sheep hear my voice and they come to me. We're all sheep. And as Isaiah said, we all like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the truer and better pastor elder who leads us with love. Jesus is the chief shepherd who lays down his life for us. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. If you have, I want you to remember that your ultimate elder, your ultimate pastor is Jesus who treated you far better than any earthly priest or pastor ever could or would. Remember that your true shepherd did not inflict wounds on you but took wounds for you that you might have life. Trust him today. Go to him. Follow him where he leads. And as much as his spirit is in us as the leadership of the church, let us help you to see him, to know him, and to follow him. And if you're going to walk with us, we ask that you pray for us, that we would walk in the grace that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ and embody, and embody that and be an example of that in our homes, our families, our marriages, and to the church. Pray for us because it's a holy, sobering calling. We know that we're going to stand before God and have to answer for things that people who are not elders will not have to answer for. And that's, that's pretty terrifying. And yet we're saved by grace as well. And we need the grace of God. Paul referred to every part of his ministry as grace. He says, he's given unto me a grace to preach the gospel. And we need you to pray for that grace to be at work in us as well as we walk together. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.